Well, good morning. Glad to share this uh, moment with you, and um, if you would, would you pray with me? Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for that amazing song that we've sung that we can praise you, the majestic God. Thank you for this season that we are um, able to remember that you sent your son into the world to be our savior, and Jesus, you came and you became like us, and that's an extraordinary thought. And as we uh, look in your word, would you speak to our hearts? Would you use this to shape us, to grow us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to transform us, so that the gospel that we um, believe would drive the very details of our lives, and then it would flow out of our lips so that others may know as well. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, earlier this week, I was on my morning walk and moving along at a pretty good clip, and suddenly, without warning, I found myself sprawled out on the asphalt, and uh, it's been a long time, years, decades, but I now know what it's like to have skinned knees again. <laughs> I didn't like it when I was a kid. I don't like it now. Um, and probably what I like even less was the loss of uh, dignity in just being sprawled out on the street. And what happened was there was a pod from a tree that I didn't notice, and I stepped on it, and my ankle went one way, and the rest of my body went the other way, and that was that. If I had noticed the pod, I probably wouldn't have adjusted my stride, however, because those pods are all over the place, and almost always they're just these empty shells. You step on them, and they crunch, and they're not a problem. This one, though, when I examined it, it hadn't opened, it wasn't empty, it was as hard as an avocado pit, and it caused me to just plant on the, on the sidewalk, or actually on the street there. Um, and uh, it, it, it was a reminder to me as I thought about it, um, that's the kind of world we live in. Most of us have a similar experience, actually, literally, physically, walking along, tripping, stumbling, hitting something, and hitting the ground. Um, but there's a, a kind of a bigger, if you will, metaphorical lesson there as well, because we live in a world where we're walking along, and as we go through life, there are things we don't notice, and they trip us up. They knock us down, and sometimes it can be pretty painful. And sometimes we even notice things. We look at them, and we misunderstand. We don't think they're going to cause a problem, and we step into it, and it really throws us down and throws us down hard. Uh, that's, that's the world we live in. We're probably familiar with that experience. And um, this morning, I just want to ask you if you are in one of those places where you feel like you've been thrown down kind of hard and maybe you're hurting just a little bit, um, because Christmas speaks to uh, the dynamics that surround that. Um, it was uh, interesting to me and, and, and ironic because I was actually out on my walk in order to be healthy, and it was the thing... <laughs> that knocked me down. And when I was laying there in the street, my wife who was standing next to me, was speaking to me, asking me to get up, are you okay, those kinds of things. But she had a little more intensity of voice than I would have thought was um, warranted by me just falling down on the, down on the street there. 
Um, uh, a few weeks prior, I had another interesting experience. I was uh, sitting on the floor, or I don't know why I was sitting on the floor. I own chairs. I'm 56 year old. I don't need to sit on the floor, but I was. I was sitting there for a time, and then I got up and walked across the room, and my daughter watched me, and um, a few steps in, she said, Dad, are you okay? And there was this extra urgency in her voice. I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> she said, you're walking funny. I said, well, give me about three more steps. Those of you that are young may not understand this. When we're young, our bones are kind of like this ergonomically designed machine that take our body wherever we want, and it's like this perfect skeleton. And as we get older, it's more like a chandelier that's kind of loosely hanging there, and, and it takes a few steps to get going, and then everything lines up, and you're fine. And I understand that just increases with time. Um, so, you know, no big deal. I walked funny for three steps, and then I was fine. I'm actually in, um, in, in good shape, so I, I'm not sure why the response was as strong as it was. I, you know, I, I know my hair's a little gray, and I've got a little wrinkles, and the mass of my body has migrated to places that I wouldn't have chosen, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm healthy, I'm strong, my chemistry's good, my body functions fine, and yet both my wife and my daughter responded not just to that moment, but with a little extra intensity. And as I thought about that, I realized that, that springs from something significant because um, it, it actually springs from vigil sitting by my bed in the hospital. And it doesn't take uh, too many traumatic experiences like that before everything looks just a little bit different. Before we realize that, you know, um, everything can be going fine and in a moment it can shift. Everything can look like it's on target and then suddenly it's not. And, and it can go pretty bad pretty fast. And so I understand why my wife and my daughter were both extra concerned in that moment. I've been fine since that incident uh, several years ago, and, and I'm fine now. But they still have that. It's a little bit traumatic to think about. Um, and the interesting thing about that moment was it wasn't just, hey, I'm trying to do the right thing to stay healthy. That um, episode actually arose specifically out of me just trying to be faithful to Jesus. I was just trying to follow him, be faithful, do what he was calling me to do, and it was out of the circumstances of that that I actually wound up hospitalized with my family wondering if I'm ever even going to be able to speak again. And that's an interesting dynamic because I think sometimes we, we have this idea perhaps that you know, following Jesus brings blessing, which it certainly does. But blessing is somehow going to be a bubble around me that protects me from things that are uncomfortable or insecure or scary, and that, that's just not the case. Sometimes uh, it's not just because I live in a broken world and things are messed up and I'm messed up that hard things come. Sometimes actually because I'm being faithful, because I'm following Jesus, hard things come. Scary things come, difficult things come. And you may have started this week last week with uh, one plan, thinking here's what's going to happen, and somewhere along the middle of the week, you may have gotten blindsided and may feel like, I don't know what happened, but this is horrible. This is so painful. This is so difficult. This is so disconcerting. I don't understand. This is confusing. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I'm, I'm anxious. Uh, maybe I'm even lashing out at God. Why are you doing this to me? And if you didn't have that happen this last week, you could next week or sometime in the future. I pray by God's grace it doesn't happen soon. But we all know that experience. 
And if we're going to be faithful in following Jesus, we have to be real about that experience and be real about the fact that it's not just because I live in a broken world that hard things happen, and it's not just arising out of my own stupidity and foolish choices that hard things happen. Sometimes living wisely and following Jesus actually leads into hard things. And the Christmas story is a beautiful story about God entering this world. But the surprising thing about it that we can lose track of is that God enters this world in its mess. Jesus is born in a manger surrounded by the scent of cow manure and the the breathings of animals and the hay. And there's nothing hallmark about it, actually. It's It's pretty gritty. And that gets lost. Um, It's God entering this world as it is and working in this world to change it to what it should be, but working from the inside out. And that involves me, even as his servant, as his child, as the one who does have his favor. He works on me from the inside out, and then he involves me in his work in this world, which is a work from the inside out in the messiness that we see. And part of my growth in following Jesus and part of the joy of Christmas is if, if I read it a little bit more deeply, I can understand that there's, there's real hope, there's real anchor, even as things get really hard. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Matthew 1. Actually, I'm going to flip back and forth between Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. So it's kind of a test of your dexterity to just keep both passages open. And we're going to look at the story, particularly as it unfolds with Mary and Joseph, just to remind us of the details so I can just hone in on a couple of verses. God says he's going to send his son to be the savior of the world through a virgin. He does that in Isaiah 7. And then Gabriel shows up, and in Luke chapter 1, he says to Mary, you're that virgin, the baby's going to come. How am I going to have a baby? I'm a virgin. He says, yes, that's the point. This is going to be from God. And she says, okay. Whatever God wants, I'll, I'll do. Um, that creates a crisis. Joseph, her fiancé, and, and, and betrothal, the you know, engagement was much more uh, formal than it is with us. So it was much more complex. He is in a quandary, what's happened. He doesn't know what's gone on. Mary's pregnant. He's thinking, I should just divorce her quietly. And an angel appears to him and says, no, this is from God, and you should raise this child and call him Jesus. And Joseph says, okay, I'll do that. Then they go to Bethlehem. They've both raised in Nazareth in Galilee, and they move south into Judea to go to Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus is born, and they live there for a while. They settle in. They start life there um, because uh, the story of the angels rejoicing and the shepherds visiting happens right there at the manger, but then the story of the wise men that we're so familiar with which shows up in Matthew chapter 2, actually occurs months later. They're living in a house. They've settled in. Jesus is now a toddler, and the, uh, these wise men from the east come, and they bring these exquisite gifts, and they honor the newborn king. The sitting king in Israel is genuinely a madman. He's violent, and he's dangerous, and so God warns them to leave by a different way, and they go a different way so that their lives aren't in danger. God warns Joseph, says, you got to get out of here, take Jesus, take Mary, and run for your lives. So they run down to Egypt, and then after some time, God says it's safe to go back. On their way back, they find out it's safe, but it's not safe. Uh, Herod, the king who was crazy, um, he uh, has 
passed and now it's divided between his family and his family's not a whole lot better than him and the son that is particularly troubling is now ruling in Jerusalem and in Judea, which is where Bethlehem is, the, their new home. And so they don't go back there. Instead, they go back to Nazareth, their old home, and that's where Jesus grows up in Nazareth in Galilee. So that's a story that we're fairly familiar with. Just want to bring those details back into our minds so that as we dip into some key verses and, and get some key understanding, we can follow along. So in Matthew chapter 1, um, what we're going to see is that God's work is experienced differently if you look at it from the ground level or if you look at it from the God level. And one of the fundamental growth points I need to cultivate and God will help me with in my own journey is to look and less look at my life less and less through the ground level lens and more and more through the God level lens. Not to be naive, what I'm feeling, I'm feeling, what's hard is hard, I don't have to pretend about that, but there's more to the story and, and the more to the story is actually the important part of the story. So let's pick it up. We see an angel appearing to Joseph. In, in Matthew chapter 1, in verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, stop there and just let that sink in. That's the point I want to get across. Joseph is a just man. Luke chapter 1, we have the story of um, the angel coming to Mary. Shows up starting in verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now stop there and just let that soak in. So we've got Joseph, who is known by God as a just man, and we have Mary, who is defined by God as one who is favored and with whom the Lord is dwelling. That's pretty high praise. And if you think about it, God is going to send his son into the world, and he's going to entrust him as a baby who's going to grow up a normal human life to a couple, to raise him, to train him, to love him, to care for him. That's a pretty high calling, and God's going to be pretty picky, I think. Um, scholars, one estimate is that there's maybe 300 million, um, 300 million people in the world at this time. And um, out of the 300 million, God chose Mary and Joseph. In other words, one in 150 million amongst the women, one in 150 million amongst the men, or the couple, two out of 300 million. That's, that's the kind of people they were. They are truly the good guys. Now, it's hard to get a scale of that, so in the service on the lawn earlier, I kind of gave people an image. So if you're familiar with our lawn, it's, it's pretty easy. It's a huge lawn. And taking up the primary part of the lawn, filling it with marbles, which are half inch in diameter, 300 million of them would fill up the lawn to a height of about 25 feet. Or if you're familiar with the room I'm standing in here, the worship center, um, 300 million marbles would, would fill this room up. 
and probably spill outside. So when you think of it that way and you think, all right, you're going to have 150 million pink ones, 150 million blue ones, you're going to root through there as long as you want to, but eventually you have to pick one pink one and one blue one, and that's going to be Mary and Joseph. That's pretty selective. And he chooses them, no doubt, for their character and their faith and their faithfulness. They are, they are the best of the best. Right? These are the good guys. So it's interesting to see the good guys following God, what happens in their lives. It doesn't look pretty from the ground level at all. Um, follow along with me, if you will, in uh, Luke chapter 1. In verse, um, well, we stopped. You are the favored one. The Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Repeats that. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is all exciting stuff. This is stand up and cheer stuff. This is you can't wipe the smile off of your face stuff. This is all the bubbly warmth inside feeling pump your fist in the air. This is awesome. And then the next verse. And Mary said, how will this happen since I'm a virgin? Now think about that, and let's go back to Matthew chapter 1. Let's pick up Joseph's story. We were in verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Why? Because she's pregnant, and that's a horrible thing. He didn't get her pregnant. They're not married yet. Something terrible has gone wrong. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's quoting from Isaiah 7. Now, if we stop and think about that and, and, and pull aside the layer of stand up and cheer, isn't this amazing? They get to be the parents of Jesus Christ, and this is how it all begins, and just put ourselves into their shoes in that moment. This is horrifying. God has just ripped a hole in the side of their lives, and he has trashed their reputations and their dream. This is a young couple looking forward to being married with all the dreams and all the planning that comes with that, and God announces to Mary, you're pregnant. How can I be pregnant? I'm a virgin. Well, it's my child, and it's a miracle. Yeah, people are going to believe that. Joseph doesn't believe it. He's trying to figure out what's the best way, the most gracious way for me to get out of this. It's destroying everything. It's ripping the fabric of their lives. The good thing that God is bringing, and in fact, it's coming upon them because they are following God. It's not just a circumstance of, hey, it's a broken world and something went sideways. This is God's plan, and it's super painful, and it's super hard. These are the good guys, and it looks bad. And then it gets worse. Um, look in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we pick up the story 
I don't have my Linus voice this morning, so I'll just read it in my own voice. In those days, verse 1, in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Again, we hear the story and we think we see the Hallmark cards and the manger scenes and all of these wonderful things that we've developed over time, and, and they have their place. There's a beauty to the story that's clear, and there's certain quaintness and, and, and delight, but if we will put ourselves in their shoes, it's just terror, and it's just horrible, right? Mary and Joseph have already had their dream ripped from their hands. They're starting off in a completely wrong foot. They're at odds with who knows who in their family and their community, and then God uproots them from the community. And he says, I want you to go instead to Bethlehem. But he doesn't say that to them directly. It's, it's, a, it's a king, an oppressive emperor, the Caesar, who is abusing the people of Israel, is saying you need to go there in order to be registered so that I can tax you, so that I can further oppress you. I, you know, I'm not really signing up for this duty. I don't want this. Why would I want to do that? I'm comfortable here in Nazareth. This is where I grew up. Just because my ancestral home is in Bethlehem doesn't mean anything. For me, my grandfather was born in Louisiana. Never been there. Not high on my list of places that I'm dying to go, and I certainly don't want to move there. Now, if you're from Louisiana, maybe I'm being unfair to your state. Sorry, just telling you where I am. I don't know why Joseph would be excited about going to Bethlehem. Certainly not in order to increase the emperor's ability to oppress him. And then he gets there with his very pregnant wife, and there's no place for them. There's nothing comfortable. There's nothing appropriate. They wind up sleeping next to the animals. The baby is born amidst hay and the, the scent of cows, and it's anything but ideal. This is gritty. This is grim. This is not what we wanted. This is not what we planned. This isn't how we thought it would be. And then it gets worse. We want to turn back to um, Matthew chapter 2. Verse 13. They've already now been in Bethlehem for a while. They've adjusted. Joseph has started the business. They're living in a home. The wise men come through. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's one of those stand up and cheer, pump your fist in the air, all smiles kind of moments. Because here's these powerful leaders from other countries who've shown up to give honor to their baby, right? It doesn't get much better than that. New parents love other people doting on their child. This is the center of their world and other people coming along and saying, your baby's beautiful, your baby's amazing. And, and we can say that with integrity because babies are beautiful and amazing. But this is a delightful moment. And it's not just anybody. It's these guys who've traveled great distances and they brought these exquisite gifts for the baby. And they're honoring, they're falling down before the baby to give him honor as the newly born king of the Jews. Wow. That's pretty amazing. And then verse 13, after the wise men have done their thing, God says to them in a dream not to go back and talk to Herod 
because he's going to try to kill the child instead go a different way, which they do. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there and until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was what, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. The story just keeps getting worse. This isn't a happy story at this point, not from a ground level view. Mary and Joseph are trying to be faithful, trying to follow God, and their life just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Their reputations are destroyed and their dream is taken from them. They have to go to the city of Bethlehem, which they have no desire to be there for an oppressive reason. They finally settle in there and now they're running for their lives to a foreign land and they're selling the baby's Christmas gifts to put food on the table. All because they're following God. Wow. That's harsh. That's hard. And when I experience nothing nearly of this magnitude, but when I experience hard things that come and I think I'm, I'm walking with God, I'm trying to follow you, God, and, and if I have the sense about me to say maybe God is actually in this, um, it, it, it's not easy. It's painful. I don't like it. How do Mary and Joseph continue to step into this? Finally, the situation shifts but only kind of. The last verses of chapter 2, verse 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in the dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So now we get the all-clear signal. We're living in, in Egypt, no doubt living off of the, the gifts that the wise men brought and just trying to survive in a foreign land until the guy who's crazy enough to try to kill the baby, and it's a real threat because he kills a bunch of other babies, he kills family members, he does all kinds of crazy things. He is a violent, evil man. He's finally dead. We get to go home. Well, now home has shifted. Home was originally in Nazareth. That would be fine. But now we've moved it to Bethlehem. We've started a business. We have a home. That's where we live now. Only we can't go back there. Because Herod's crazy descendant, the craziest one, is ruling in Jerusalem. And God's even telling him, don't go back there. That's a bad idea. Go back to Nazareth again. So they go back to Nazareth. Well, it's where they started. That's where they wanted the dream, but then that was taken away, and then they shift the dream, and now they got to go back there. It's, what do you want, God? How is this supposed to work? It's painful. It's confusing. It's difficult. And we've, we've read these uh, passages, and, and we've heard some of the little hints that Matthew's giving us. This fulfills what the prophet said. This fulfills what the prophet says. This fulfills what the prophet says. Remember, there's a ground-level view, which is what Mary and Joseph are living, and then there's the God-level view that will make more sense of this. And when we look at it from that, we, we tend to 
tend to brush over the hard things and go, it's not amazing, isn't it cool what God did? But Mary and Joseph aren't living there. And they probably couldn't have lived there. They weren't saying, oh, you know, I think Isaiah 7.14 says there's going to be a virgin. Hey, that's me. Cool. They're not saying, hey, I think Micah 5.2 says that the Savior's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's why we're here. Theoretically, they might have known those prophecies. But in reality, it's very unlikely. People, Herod has to send and say, where's the Messiah going to be born? It's not like daily table conversation that's going on. And even though Mary and Joseph are people of faith, they're probably young and they're growing and they're in the middle of the pain. And that's not the time when we do our best thinking. And we see over and over again, they're confused. They're asking questions. They're pondering. There's even this theme in Luke where as different things happen, Mary ponders these things in her heart. She thinks about them. She's trying to figure out, I, I trust you, God. I think something amazing is going on, but I don't quite get it, right? So as they're going through all of these hard things, as it gets worse and worse and worse and worse, they're not pulling out their special promise from God Bible and rereading those verses. They're just hurting, and they're confused, and they're saying, God, what's going on here? But I'll trust you, but I don't understand. And then some of the prophecies, there's no way they could have known. When it says, out of Egypt I have called my son, that's a quote from Hosea. It's not about Jesus. None of them would have thought it was about Jesus. It's about Israel. It's about Israel being taken out of Egypt initially. There's no way they could have guessed that. So what's going on? Is Matthew making a mistake? Is God kind of playing fast and loose with the truth. No, there's a deeper thing God's doing. And Matthew makes it clear in his gospel as he's writing that there's more going on. There's these obvious and overt prophecies that if you, if you look at Jesus and you look at those things, you can see how it all fits together. But there's this bigger theme that's going on too where Jesus is actually representing and kind of reliving some of the details of who Israel is and supposed to be. It's like these recurring themes and patterns in God's world that aren't random. They're, they're intentional and God's in them. And Jesus is specifically living out one of those as he relives many of the things in Israel's history. And Matthew's calling that out. There's no way they would have understood that. That's, he's, he's an analogy. He's a type. It's, 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 not, it's more subtle than that. And yet it's still very much God's plan. God intended for Jesus to do that, Mary and Joseph just would have had no clue. They know they're running for their lives, terrified at a crazy man, selling the things that were just given to their baby just to survive. And there doesn't seem to be any reason to them. Same thing when it says he will be called a Nazarene. There's no prophecy in the Old Testament that says that. Matthew says the prophets, probably because he's saying this is kind of a summary of what they say, and that's not even clear for us today. There's debate. There's a number of different views. The two that make the most sense to me, one is um, it's tied in with the idea of a branch because the word for branch sounds similar and in, in Hebrew there's a lot of wordplay that happens. And so there's plenty of prophecy about Jesus being the branch from David. That comes especially in Isaiah. The other is Nazareth. It, it, it's referring to Bumpkinsville. He's a hick. He's a hillbilly from nowhere, and that also fits the context, and maybe that's it. 
Um, because the Messiah is not going to be somebody that we would look on and think he's impressive. Isaiah, again, talks about there's nothing impressive about him when you look at it. Either way, we're not clear. We just know that that's what, I, what, what Matthew's pulling together and saying, yeah, the, the prophets kind of pointed us to these dynamics, and maybe, maybe even both of them. I don't know. Certainly, Mary and Joseph wouldn't have guessed. But it needed to happen. In fact, it needed to happen in a more clear way because um, in Luke, we're told, Luke 1, we're told that the Messiah is going to be a fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 9 that says, uh, Naphtali and um, Zebulun and Naphtali, you will see a great light. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. Zebulun and Naphtali, that's the region of Galilee. The Messiah had a specific tie to Galilee and God is, is keying into that. Mary and Joseph There's no way they could have known that. All they know is they're following God. They're doing the best they can. They lose their dream. They lose their reputation. They lose their home. They make a new home. They lose that home. They're running for their lives. They're spending their kids' gifts. They they go back, and they can't even go back to the new life they have. It's just overturned and difficult and problematic, and it's all rising out of actually following God. This isn't, these are consequences for your foolish behavior. This is, you're following God. This is really great, and it's going to be hard. We need to let that sink in. We need to learn to see that, not from ground level, because from ground level, it's just painful and confusing. We need to learn to see it from God level. He has told us, these are some prophecies that needed to be fulfilled. Mary, there's going to be a virgin that has the baby, and that virgin's you. Starts now. Joseph, that's what's going on. You may not have understood it, but that's what I've been planning all along, and it's happening right here, right now. Guys, the, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. I've got to get you from Nazareth to Bethlehem. may not make sense to you, but it makes perfect sense to me. Jesus is going to actually fulfill some things in his person that are kind of analogous to what Israel went through. I'm going to bring him out of Egypt just like I did with them when I inaugurated the first covenant. I'm going to bring my son, the Messiah, out of Egypt to begin preparing the way for the second covenant, for the new covenant. That's going to happen. I want him in Galilee. I already said there's going to be a light shining in the darkness, and he has to be connected there. All of these things are part of God's carefully laid out plan. In fact, getting the God level view, I think really snaps into focus for me with one more little bit of, if you will, Bible trivia, but I think it's really significant. The person who gives the announcements in Luke 1 and 2 connected with Christmas is the angel Gabriel. He only shows up two places in scripture. He shows up in Luke 1 and 2, And he shows up in the middle of the book of Daniel. Daniel, the prophet that God is giving revelation to say, here's how I'm going to unfold history, and here's how I'm going to bring my kingdom, and here's how Messiah is going to come. And one of the times that Gabriel shows up in Daniel is in chapter 9, where God specifically says, here's how it's going to unfold, and here's how Messiah will come. Gabriel's the one who helped Daniel understand that so that he could write it down for God's people. And then he shows up to talk to Mary and say, all of that stuff that's been prepared all these years, 
Here it is. See, God is um, not random. He's never random. He's always at work for his purposes. He never reacts and he never improvises. He's never trying to salvage a situation that's somehow gone sideways. He's pre-planned and he's always pitch perfect. He's working things out exactly as he wants in the world and in my life as his follower. Now there's a, there's a bigger lesson about the sovereignty of God and my responsibility that we don't have time to unpack. And there is a role for my choices and my choices do matter. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is God is still somehow in the midst of all that in complete control, working out perfectly what he said he was going to do for his perfect purposes. The God who's at work in the world right now is the same God who was able to cause a decree from an emperor that shifted the whole world to get one couple from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And he's at work in everything now too, which means he's at work in my life. When my life goes sideways, when my life is knocked on its head, when things aren't going as I expect, and maybe even as I'm or even because I'm following God, he's at work in that too. The same God who said he's working all things out according to the good pleasure of his will is working these, these things out right now. The same God who said... Um, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to God's purpose is the same God who's working according to his purpose right now. The same God who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I won't abandon you or leave you alone is with me. Emmanuel, God with me. The same God who said, I won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear is the one who's going to bear me up in the hard thing I'm going through. Part of my challenge, part of my deep growth need is that I would be able to, by God's grace, change out the lenses. Don't look at a ground level. I mean, I need to, I have to, right? And it hurts, it hurts. I, I don't pretend otherwise. But there's a bigger story being written, always, always. Look at that bigger story. Why is it that as I'm following God, these hard things are happening? I may never fully understand what he's doing. God doesn't tell me everything about his will, but he is doing things. And I need to switch to looking from a God level and understand that he's doing good things. Mary and Joseph could look back years later and say, wasn't that amazing, all the things God did? Wouldn't trade him for the world. But in the moment, they were terrifying, they were disorienting, and they were painful. And they didn't make a lot of sense to them. One of my deep prayers is that I would, over the course of my lifetime following Jesus, ultimately reach the measure of the stature of a 13-year-old girl. And that's a high calling, that's a high bar. One of the things that's so incredible about the story is that the sovereign God is working, and at the ground level, it's not making sense. But at the God level, it's perfectly in control, and everything's happening as it should. And they let him do that. They don't push back. When, when the angel says to Joseph, take her as your wife, here's what it says.
Verse 24 of Matthew 1. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. Took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. It's pretty amazing. And Luke chapter 1. After Gabriel said, well, you're going to have a baby and God's going to miraculously make this happen. Verse 38, Mary says, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's my longing, that I would, by God's grace, grow to where he can stand before me, whether it's in an angel or whether it's just his word. You know, we need to listen to God, but he's already said most of what we need to know. He will and can speak other things at other times to help us with some of the details, but we always start here, and sometimes we never need to go beyond here. Often we never need to go beyond here. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want to be able to come to this and respond without trying to pick and choose, without trying to be selective or justify my own things, and just be able to say, all right, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be just as you've said. It's a pretty amazing thing that Mary, probably just a 13-year-old girl, does there. Christmas is about Emmanuel, God with us. He comes in a manger, though, right? He's, he's born into the grit and grime of the world to change it from the inside out, change me from the inside out, and to involve me in that process, which means I don't go through life in this blessing bubble that keeps all the heart away. It's not the way it works. And in fact, one of the challenges is that sometimes I can think of my life in terms of my life will work out depending on how God responds to me. And that's exactly upside down. It's how I respond to God. God's always the one who's taking the initiative. He took the initiative to start my journey of faith, and he takes the initiative to walk with me on the journey of faith. And the question I need to keep asking myself is how will I respond? How will I respond? How will I respond? By his grace, can I trade, trade the ground level view for the God level view and say God's doing something here and I can trust him with it? And then by his grace, can I just obey and trust him? Our girls grew up hearing a mantra that I'm sure drove them crazy at times, but it was pretty simple. We would say, you need to obey right away, all the way, with a happy heart. That's a lot harder to do than it sounds. Mary and Joseph... By God's grace, they do that. And no one thinks they lost out. Don't know what God's doing in my life right now or your life. May never, until I stand before him, understand some of the things that are going on. Some things are hard. He's at work in them. I um, was talking with my Bible study guys, and we were talking about other things, but some of the hard things that came along, and I told them I was going to quote them this morning. Um because they were talking about this very theme, even though we weren't working through this passage. One of the guys said, I feel like I need to understand, and the reality is that I don't. God is using this to make me bear fruit, and I need to learn to worship him and celebrate that. I need to stop idolizing the plan and be in this place for a relationship with God. How much do I want to know the plan and control the plan? I don't need that. That's an idol. I need to trust God. Another one said, if, if I ever understand everything he did for me, then either he wouldn't be finite or I wouldn't 
or he wouldn't be infinite or I wouldn't be finite. Think about that one. He wouldn't be infinite or I wouldn't be finite if he made sense. That's a great comfort. I don't want a God that always makes sense because that's no God at all. If there were no difference, there would be no God. I was reading through the prophets the last couple of weeks, and there's the themes that keep popping up. And as I was thinking about how they responded, constantly questioning and whining and never responding to God as was his due, here's what I wrote about my own response to God. It's, in our relationship, I am fickle. He is faithful. So why do I question him? In our relationship, I am restless, but he is reliable. So why do I doubt him? In our relationship, I am the one who wavers, wanders, and often compromises, yet he is patient with me. He is the one who is steady, stable, and maintains holy character. How is it I grow impatient with him? In our relationship, I am a fool. Christmas is for fools. It's to say, look, I entered the messy world and I'm going to change it. But the journey itself can be tough. I need you to trust me. I need you to stop looking just ground level and get the God level view and then I need you to obey right away, all the way, with a happy heart because you trust me. You're going to need a lot of grace for that, but that's why I came. God with us. Lord, I pray that we would trust you. Some of us are in really hard places. May we trust you. Some of us are struggling. May we trust you. Some of us are wavering. May we not buckle. May we lean into your spirit and follow your lead. You're a good God. Nobody could have guessed what you were doing. And Mary and Joseph, it was hard. It was really hard for an extended season, yet they wouldn't have traded it for the world. We know that. What a beautiful story, though it came through hardship. You're writing a beautiful story in our lives too, Lord. May we trust you in that. Whatever this moment is like, whether this moment is all smiles or it has the, the scent of a stable and pain, may we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.